Let us begin with a word of prayer, and uh, we'll get started in today's study, and hopefully leave time for questions at the end. So let us pray. Heavenly Father, I give you thanks and praise for the opportunity to open your word, to be able to uh, teach these uh, people, and I just thank you for entrusting them to uh, the care of the elders at this church, and what a privilege it is to serve them, and I pray that you would now illumine our minds uh, to we, that we might understand your word and how to apply it and how to see the world and how to view it and how to discern truth from error, from uh, good, from what is bad. And I pray specifically now as we think about the issue of counseling and discipleship, I pray that you'd give us discernment so that we might see that your word is truly sufficient to enable us to help all matters related to the soul or the psyche and that you'd give us wisdom and discernment as we navigate this world. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. If you just walked in, make sure before you leave to get one of these. If you remember, when we did the series on the conscience, I kept referring to this book. And this, this is an excellent book that I, even though we've gone through the Romans 14 series, I recommend that you make some time in the next couple of weeks to just sit down and read it. It's not... It wouldn't be hard to read in maybe just a couple of sittings, all right? Um, but really, really helpful book. And so when I said that I would love to give it to everybody, an anonymous donor came by and said, hey, I'll, get, I'll pay for it so that everybody can have a copy. And so there we have it. Everybody gets a copy of this book. Very helpful, very useful, very practical. And I think that's why you've a lot of you found the Romans 14 study to be so helpful because it helps us think through issues related to com uh, conscience, preference, how to deal with one another when we disagree on these issues. And this book will be very helpful because I, because I use this book a fair amount as I prepared for those lessons. So with that, let's turn now to, we're still on lesson two. Uh, I, I printed off some sheets in case you didn't bring yours today or in case you need an extra one because I know I didn't leave a whole lot of room on the original sheet to write notes. So if you'd like to have another one so you can write notes, but we are still in this one, number two, Biblical Counseling, lesson number two, Theological Foundations for Counseling. My goal today is to get through this so that then next week we can talk about the subject of the sufficiency of Scripture for counseling, okay? And remember, just to bring us back to why we're doing this, the first and most important reason why we're doing this study is so that you all, as God's people, will have the confidence from Romans 15 to, to be able to counsel one another. And when we're talking about counseling, we're really just talking about discipleship. That's one of the ways I define counseling, is problem-specific discipleship, right? Any discipleship or any instruction relating to the soul is under the heading of discipleship. And if it's under the heading of discipleship, then we want to take ourselves to the resources we've been given for discipleship, namely the Word of God. Okay? So it's to enable you and help you to be able to counsel effectively one another, enable us to counsel ourselves. Like I said, as I've been reading to and listening, as I've been reading and listening to books on this topic, I've been taught and instructed on how to better not only instruct others, but to instruct myself. Okay? So that's another piece of this. But also, another important piece of this is to give you discernment so that as you make your way in the world, you're able to recognize 
any kind of counsel you're receiving is not coming from some uh, unbiased, neutral, objective standpoint, but is always coming with some sort of bent or underlying assumptions about the most important things in the world. Okay? And that being the case then, we are always being discipled by someone or somebody and we need to be discerning about what we are taking into our hearts and minds with regard to the issues related to the soul or another way to say it, the psyche, right? So I want us to grow in discernment. I want us to see, and this will be our topic for next week, I want us to see how the scriptures are sufficient for all issues related to the soul or the psyche or the inner person, all right? So let us go into our study for this week. Last week we left off at uh, the nature of man's problems. Just briefly walk through that just real quickly so we can get right into the solution. The nature of man's problems are uh, the fact that we are first spiritually dead. We're blind spiritually. And we have a corrupt nature which leads us to sin against God and others. We are sinful to our, at our core. We are unable to see spiritual truths. We're unable to see reality, you might say, ultimately and fully. Because we're blinded to the glory of Christ, who is the very ground of reality, who is the greatest of all realities, you could say. Um, in our unredeemed state, we are unable to do anything to please God. At every moment of our existence, in our unregenerate state, all we do is sin, because all that we do flows out of, heart, out of a heart that is set against God. And then there is, so there's this reality where we are spiritually dead and spiritually blind, and this is bringing about and causing our own sin in our own lives, which is defiling our conscience, which is creating its own anxiety, which is creating problems with other people, which is really creating the problems that we experience that then bring us to a point where we need counseling from somebody else. Uh, we experience suffering due to personal sin, and we looked at a several texts last week where uh, we sin against God and we sin against others, and this leads to a defiled and burdened conscience. This leads to guilt over sin. This leads to ruptured relationships. This re leads to relational pain. This re leads to animosity towards others, which also causes anxiety and fear and anger, and which then compounds the, the conscience problem because our conscience, as we, are, uh, we sin against others and they're upset at us, then we get upset at them, and it just compounds our sin because we usually respond with sin. Uh, we suffer due to sin committed against us, right? We can be the object of random violence or we can suffer under someone's unrighteous anger. We can be the object of hurtful words. We may be the object of physical abuse or neglect. We can be the object of someone causing us financial trouble or loss. And this sin against us causes us grief. It causes depression. It causes anxiety, fear, anger, confusion, sadness. It causes a desire to escape reality which then leads to drug and alcohol use and other forms of escapism and other kinds of addictive behaviors to get us out of, get us out of the narrative that we're currently living in into some other narrative. And it causes us to bring about personal harm, which can be in the form of cutting and drug use and so on. And these are the kinds of things that lead people to counseling, right? And this suffering that we are, due, that we are experiencing due to other people's sin causes us to respond sinfully to them, thereby defiling our conscience even more. And if we don't have the remedy of the gospel, then that compounding of the guilt upon our conscience leads to greater and greater weights of anxiety and, and other things. And like I said last week, uh, frankly, the moder modern thinking has not reckoned with the way that sin 
at its deepest root in all of its manifestations, sin wreaks havoc on what we might call our mental health or what the world might call our mental health. They haven't reckoned with this root fundamental enemy to our so-called mental health. Uh, physical ailments are created by the fall and the curse. We just mentioned this last week. We live in a fallen world and our bodies are fallen and they don't work the way they're supposed to work. And they don't interact with our souls the way they're supposed to interact with our souls. And our souls interact with our bodies the way they're meant to, in that perfect state before sin happened, when there is a perfect correspondence between our souls and bodies. And now we have physical ailments. We're susceptible to sickness and disease and ultimately death. And as we see even in the scriptures, the soul and the body are so closely intertwined that the soul will affect the body and the body will affect the soul. David experienced this when he was deep and mired in sin, unrepentant, his sin with Bathsheba, unrepentant. It, it weighed so heavy upon him, and it's like his bones were rotting. It's just a severe physical reaction to this unrepentant sin. We have disordered desires. Our desires for food and sexual intimacy and productivity and dominion and relationships are all God-given desires. But sin causes our desires to be warped and distorted and perverted so that now we desire the wrong object or we desire the right object with inappropriate intensity. And our desires get turned inward and focused on ourselves so that we, do, we harm others to get what we want. And our minds and hearts are, uh, don't work the way they're supposed, to be, or supposed to work. Our thoughts and our emotions are messed up and unreliable. Our minds have a propensity to think wrongly about God, others, the world, and other people. We mentioned we live in a fallen and cursed environment, so even this environment that we're in with all of its natural disasters and troubles causes us suffering and can cause us to not only suffer from its futility as we put our hand to the plow and we don't get nearly back what we put into it, right? We talked about this. It doesn't matter what industry you're in, whether it's farming or whether it's tech, you may work on something for a long time to get very little back or to have a manager say, yeah, we don't need what you just worked on for three months, right? But it can, a natural disaster, so not only is there that curse on our current work situation, but natural disasters can wipe out our uh, ruined life and livelihoods, creating more suffering and, and even more sin against God. We looked at Proverbs 19.3, when uh, a man's ways lead him to ruin, he rages against the Lord. And you see that even when natural disasters hit, uh, God can be the first person to blame. And then finally, we said that demon possession and oppression are also a reality in this life. And so, this is how we would characterize the nature of man's problems at their foundational place, at their root. Okay? So, we, you, you can't ultimately diagnose people's problem without a solid grasp on this foundational aspect of being a human of anthropology, we might say. You have to have a biblical anthropology in order to have a biblical, what we might call, psychology. And this, at, at the very root, is understanding our situation as human beings who are sinful, who live in a cursed environment, whose bodies and souls do not work the way they are supposed to. So then that brings us to the solution Right, for this deepest foundational root problem. And the Bible is so comprehensive at this point. For every problem that you 
have in relation to sin, God gives a corresponding remedy. I'll say that again. For every problem that you have in relation to sin, God gives the exact perfect corresponding remedy. You have guilt against God and His law, and so do I. We are guilty. We may feel guilty sometimes, we may not. But the fact of the matter is, is that we are guilty. The answer to that guilt is providing a substitute who is perfectly righteous, who has fulfilled all and done all those things that we have failed to do, and then not only that, but then paid the penalty for all the things that we did that we shouldn't have done, so that God can now look upon us when we simply believe in that substitute to now justify us and declare us righteous. So your guilt issue is done away with, with justification. The doctrine of justification deals with your root problem of guilt, objective guilt with God. This is Romans 3, uh, 21 and, and following. The book of Romans is really Paul's exposition on the doctrine of justification. Justification really is at the heart of the Christian faith. It's one of the, the things that set the Christian faith apart from every other religion. Don't let people tell you that Christianity is something other than the doctrine of justification. It is more than the doctrine of justification, but justification is at the root of, of everything else that we experience in the Christian life. Without being declared legally righteous before God, we have no rights to any other blessing in the Christian life. All right? Paul writes it like this. He says, but now, so he just had said that no human being, no person can be righteous before God by keeping the law. Any law, but particularly the law of God. But he, then he says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, so apart from law keeping, even though the law and the prophets, namely the Old Testament, bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. The gift of righteousness that you need to stand before God without condemnation, that is a gift that is given through law-keeping? No, through faith in Jesus Christ. Full stop. And it's for all who believe. There's no distinction. There's no distinction among us here, no distinction among any person in the world because we have all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And we are justified or declared righteous by some good works, by our, our goodness in here? No, purely by His grace as a gift. So the guilt problem is remedied by this gift of grace, which is in the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood. A propitiation is a wrath-bearing sacrifice. There is a fury and a tidal wave of wrath that is headed for us, and deservedly so. And Jesus steps in and stops that tidal wave completely. He stands in as our substitute so that at the cross, that wrath is poured upon him, that righteous anger that God has. That wrath, we hear the word wrath, we're like, boy, that just sounds kind of like out of control. And, you know, there even some of the best theologians around have agreed, like wrath is just, it's just not the best of word, but it's kind of the word that we have to use, Okay. Because you don't want to give the impression that, that God is just flying off the hook, right? And just getting, getting mad because he wants to. God's anger towards sin is perfectly justifiable at every single point. He is so infinitely glorious and beautiful and holy that even the very hint of sin deserves his full uh, anger, okay? 
But Jesus steps in at the cross and he bears that tidal wave in our place so that there's no water, so to speak, that gets past Jesus' cross, no water of God's anger that gets past Jesus' cross because he was a propitiation, a wrath-bearing sacrifice. Some people, a lot of people over the uh, last hundred years, you could say, have fought against this idea that Jesus is a wrath-bearing sacrifice. It's exactly what that word means. And the reason why people fight against that is because they, they don't want to conceive of God being angry at people, right? But that's because we've misconceived how holy God is. And God sends His Son, not because someone forced His hand. He sends His Son because He loves people. It's precisely why He sent His Son, so His people could be saved. And so he, he sends his son so that the son can stop this tidal wave of uh, God's wrath for his people. And this gift is to be received by faith alone. Full stop. It's received by faith. God does this to show his righteousness because in his divine forbearance he passed over former sins. The, old, the sins of the Old Testament were kind of overlooked, you could say. Yeah, they had sacrifices. They had animal sacrifices, but I mean, they had to keep doing them. And then when David sins grievously, he's allowed to keep living and he's allowed to keep being king. And God says he forgives him. And David writes that he experiences God's forgiveness. And if you're paying attention at all, you'd be like, you can't just do that, God. You can't just forgive somebody and call yourself just. Like the judge who allows the, the child rapist to just go because he's like, I'm feeling merciful today. You, just, you can go. No condemnation for you, uh, serial rapist, right? And that's how you would have to read the Old Testament unless God comes along and fulfills His righteous justice by giving of His Son. So that's what Paul means here. He's declaring and displaying His righteousness. No one gets away with sin. All sin is paid for somewhere. And for His people, it's paid for at the cross. And 20, verse 26, it was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He can do two things. He can remain just. So God is perfectly gloriously, beautifully just at every moment and at the exact same time he can declare utter sinners, ungodly sinners righteous. How? Because of Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. And that solves the problem of our guilt before God. That is that particular remedy that God gives in response to our Guilt. This is the doctrine of justification, legal right standing with God. And this results in unchanging peace with God. Chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. An unending and unchanging peace with God. Your Creator, the one with whom you were at war and the one who was at war with you and whose wrath hovered over you has sent his son out of love to be the perfect sacrifice and your righteous substitute so that now you have complete and total peace with your creator. Your eternity is taken care of. Your death, it's taken care of. Eternal life, it's taken care of. Your standing before God, it's taken care of. Your favor with God, it's taken care of. So he's, he's remedied that situation. This solves the guilt problem because it has dealt with our sin problem at the cross of Jesus Christ. The, in Christ, the believer is forgiven of all sin, past, present, and future, and stands perfectly righteous in God's sight. 
No longer do we bear any legal guilt. We have unchanging peace with God. And here's what's important. The greatest and deepest and most profound source of our anxiety has now been removed. I'm not saying there aren't other sources of anxiety. What I'm saying is the deepest root cause of our anxiety has now been taken care of. There's no greater cause for anxiety than that a person have the anger and just wrath of his creator or her creator hovering over them and hovering over their conscience and pressing into their conscience. So when that is removed completely by this glorious doctrine of justification by faith alone, the, the deepest and most profound root of our anxiety has now been destroyed. Right? There are other anxieties to deal with. The Bible talks about other kinds of anxieties to deal with. But at root, justification deals with that one. So we have, to, we have to keep that in mind as we deal with these important questions of what causes anxiety and how to deal with it and other, and other issues that people head to counseling for. The person and the work, so we are in the person and work of Jesus Christ. We are given justification, redemption, reconciliation, forgiveness of sin. It deals with our legal objective situation. And everything is built on that, right? Now we have full rights to all the blessings of being God's child. God loves us with the very love that he has for his own son. And he wants us to experience that love and not put anything in the way of it. He wants you to experience the full flow of his love upon you and upon me. He wants us to experience that. And it's built upon this doctrine of justification. And this has to be kept clear because we will fall in sin and uh, struggle in this life. And if we think that our falls and sins and struggles somehow affect our uh, righteous standing before God, then we will have anxiety and depression and struggles that, that compound and so on. So we need to keep these things clear and sharp. But God has also given us the person and work of the Holy Spirit. In regeneration and new birth, God makes us new people. What I'm concerned about is that when it comes to the counseling task, that we fail to rightly estimate or rightly calculate what salvation truly is. Salvation is, a, is an incredibly life-changing, person-changing, radical, we could say, thing. When I say radical, all I mean just going down to the roots, right? That's all that radical really means, going to the root of something, changing its fundamental uh, status, right? So what I'm concerned about is as we talk about counseling, that, that we're like, yeah, we're saved, and yeah, there's Jesus, and yeah, there's the Holy Spirit, but the really important issues need to be dealt with elsewhere. There's, there's deeper, more profound issues that we... Uh, when it comes to the soul, that we need to get resources outside of, of, of Christianity, and we need to go to them, right? And what I, I'm concerned that this does is this doesn't reckon with what has happened at salvation. What's happened at salvation for this human being? They've been brought from spiritual death to spiritual life. They've been changed fundamentally at the very core of who they are. They've been born again. They've been saved from God's wrath. They've been given a new nature. They've been given a new heart that now responds to their creator, that now 
loves the word of God that now pursues and prefers righteous things rather than unrighteous things. It now has the capacity to walk in growing wisdom and to navigate this life in their relationships and their work and everything else with God-given wisdom. So we don't want to underestimate the, the reality of what salvation produces in a person. It is a holistic change in, in somebody. Now this change needs to be worked out over time, right? We don't, we're not saved and all of a sudden we're fully grown, grown up in the faith. These, these, we need to grow and things need to change and we need to, to put sin to death and these things change over time. But nevertheless, something very profound and deep and radical has changed. That's why I always encourage you guys, it doesn't, doesn't matter what your testimony is. Some, some, I, even, I was even talking to someone on the phone this week. They're so distraught because their testimony doesn't sound like, yeah, I was a murderer and I, I took drugs all my life and then um, and I, was, uh, I had this just incredibly immoral background and then Jesus saved me and my life has completely changed, right? And they're just distraught because they don't have this testimony. And I'm like, it doesn't matter if you're that guy or if you're the person who grew up in a Christian home who was, who was a Pharisee for 10 years and then you got, you, you, the lights came on and you beheld Jesus' righteousness and no longer relied upon your own. That person over here who got saved out of all kinds of debauchery and this person who got saved in a Christian home, they are both dead people who are raised to life. Both testimonies are just as radical. Okay? So we have to be really careful. Um, I used to, when I gave my testimony, I gave this long old testimony and you know, I was into all this. I, I've shortened it up a, a fair amount now because I don't want it to sound as though my testimony is any more profound than the, the person who grew up in the Christian home who's now a believer. Both testimonies are just as radical because both people went from death to life. So however you give your testimony, just be careful that you're not somehow privileging these what we call profound testimonies or uh, conversions with these lower kinds of conversions of people in Christian homes or, or whatever it might be or who grew up pretty, uh, living pretty moral, what we might call clean and healthy lifestyles. Bo in both cases, people went from death to life and that is radical. That is salvation. We've been born again. So this being born again leads to faith and repentance, the ability to actually put sin to death. You can change. I can change. The things that you hate about yourself that are sinful, you can actually begin to overcome by the power of the Holy Spirit and correct teaching and counsel from Scripture. New birth creates faith and repentance and it results in progressive sanctification. This overcomes our corrupt nature and sinful nature problems so that the believer can begin to mortify sin in his or her life, which creates problems. What creates problems in your life? Your sin against others, people's sin against you, how you respond to the suffering that you've experienced. And now we can begin to have our minds shaped to think more and more according to God's word, more and more according to that which will give us strength, inner strength and courage and hope and peace and so on. The person can now experience mind transformation and begin to think rightly about God, reality, others, her problems, her suffering, and her sure hope for the future. 
So that's the solution of the regeneration of regeneration and new birth. Finally, here's the solution of the final judgment. The final judgment will make sure that every wrong done against you will be dealt with. Every single one. There will not be one wrong that has been committed against you that will not be dealt with. It will be dealt with in one of two places. Either at the cross, and that person who did wrong to you is your brother and sister in Christ who has God's forgiveness, so they best have your forgiveness as well. Or, if they're an unbeliever, their sin against you will be paid for by God himself for all eternity. So justice will be paid for. Justice will be done. And a, a, a lot of counseling revolves around people who go in and they've been sinned against, they've been done wrong, either in their past by parents or siblings or uh, an old girlfriend or an old boyfriend or some relation. And at root, they want justice to be done. And it's a fine desire to have. We, I think we just, we just desire that because we're made in God's image. And what hope can you give someone? There's, there's more, more than this, but at, at basic, we have to give people the hope that justice will be done. It may not be done in this life. You can't put your hope in the justice system remedying the justice problem for you. It may, it, it may come about that the justice system serves your particular situation, or may not. At the very least, we have to give a person the hope that their, the sins that they've experienced at the hands of other people will, will be truly dealt with by God. The final judgment deals with our justice problems. It deals with the problems related to other people's sins against us. This is one of, one of the important pieces that we have to help people build into their own thinking and feeling about sins committed against them. Right? It's not the only thing we'll say, but it's an important piece. Finally, glorification. This is the removal of all personal sin, the sins of others, and the transformation from a cursed environment to a renewed, perfect, righteous environment. Y'all ready for that? Pretty excited about that? I am too. Uh, 2 Corinthians 4. Paul did not think it was flippant or unfeeling or uncaring to set people's hearts upon a future reality that will literally swallow up any kind of suffering we experienced here. These are things that by the Spirit we are to behold with eyes of faith so that we can experience them and even taste them in the present. So these are future realities that God intends for us to get benefit from now. Okay? Paul says, we do not lose heart. You ever, you ever tempted to lose heart in, the, in this life? That leads to depression, we might say, or maybe that is how you define it. It's losing heart, losing hope, unable to get up in the morning, unable to make your way through life. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, there it is, we live in a fallen environment, we, our bodies are wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. So Christians have the promise of being this inner renewal, being changed by the Spirit. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comprehension. Now just wait a second. This is Paul writing light, momentary affliction. And the Apostle Paul suffered then all of us in here suffered more than all of us in here combined. He suffered incredible loss and incredible pain, uh, incredible physical uh, pain. He was 
he gives he outlines it later in this uh, book in chapter um, yeah chapter ten. He says this. He says um, he needs to defend himself a little bit because they're starting to doubt his qualifications as an apostle due to these false teachers who are creeping into the church at Corinth. He says, with far greater labors, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings, often near death, five times I received at the hands of the Jews, forty lashes, less one, three times I had been beaten with rods, once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, a night and day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys, danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger from the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers and toil and hardship, through many sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, and cold and exposure, and apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak when I am not weak? Who is made to fall when I am not indignant? So I'm not making light of anybody's suffering in here. Some of it is profound. And, and I've, I've experienced some suffering in my life. Okay? But I think one of the reasons why Paul had, God had Paul experience these things is so that when he would write something like this, we could believe it and apply it to our situation, right? Kind of like a greater to a lesser kind of argument. For this light momentary affliction, it didn't sound very light and momentary when I just read it, okay? Paul lived for probably um, 30 years as a, as a Christian, about, about that, okay? And during this time, suffered grievously, as we just read, much of it very profound, deep, painful, suffering, and he, he classifies it as light, momentary affliction. And I just think it's in God's wisdom that he had Paul experience the things that he did so that when he wrote this, we could believe it. And he says it this way, this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, for the things that are, unseen, things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. So in comparison, and he says similar things in Romans chapter 8, verses 18 and following, in comparison with the glory that we are someday going to experience, even the most profound and deep suffering we can experience in this life is what Paul would classify as light and momentary. Now, you could wield this in a way that's cruel and unkind. You certainly could. But just because people don't know how to wield this kind of truth in the right way doesn't mean that we shouldn't use this truth in the right way, right? This is a truth that we all need, and it's intended by God to be used for our benefit in this life. Glorification is the complete removal of all personal sin, the sins of others, the transformation from a cursed environment to a renewed, perfect, righteous environment, Suffering will be swallowed up in a weight of glory that will make the suffering we experienced seem light. What do you do when you are in the throes of deep and profound suffering? Well, one of the things is to fix your heart on the truth of a coming glory that will swallow up our suffering so that we can look back and say, that was very light. That's, that's glorification. That is one of the remedies to our sin problem. 
and the final remedy. I will stop there. I do want to finish with this section, to this, this lesson today. So I'll stop there for questions on that section, and then we will go through the, the last part, which will just take a few minutes, I think. So any questions so far? That was a lot to take in, I know, but I wanted to get through that and press a few important things home. Any questions, comments, thoughts, concerns, hopes, desires, dreams, aspirations? Yeah. So when you say about justification that God removed all your sins, mm -hmm. you're not saying you're it's cheap grace or it's not it's clarifying, uh, cheap grace or you just gave a pass, but also you're coming under the lordship of Jesus, right? Right. So it has to be combined with so justification and all of the things that we just said needs to be understood under the heading of union with Christ. You're joined with Christ. These things aren't a kind of legal fiction that God just does. You're in true faith, you're joined with Jesus Christ. And if you're joined and united with Jesus Christ, then you now have the resources and the power to uh, walk in faithfulness and righteousness. In fact, Paul says that that is what inevitably must happen. So the answer to... Uh, because we're no longer under sin, but under grace, so we sin all the more. And Paul's like, may it never be. And then he goes on to say, that can't be possible because you've been raised up with Christ and you've been united with him. This is Romans chapter 6. So the person who says that they are justified but gives no evidence that they are in fact united to Christ by a change in desire and a, and a beginning now to walk in patterns of faithful obedience is someone who is demonstrating that they don't understand what true faith is. So uh, we want to be careful that we don't that that we don't undermine the doctrine of justification by making it sound as though you must add works to it by a faithful and obedient life. And that's been some confusion recently saying that when you stand before God someday, there's going to be a final justification, and that final justification is going to be based on your initial justification, but then how you lived. That's heresy. Okay? Your final justification when you stand before God will be the same justification that you experienced when you believed in Jesus. Your, the justification that God declared over you when you believed in Jesus was the future being brought into the present. Okay? So that then when you stand before God someday and, you, uh, and he declares you justified or vindicated, it will be the same justification and vindication that he gave you at the moment of true saving faith. It's not based on anything that you have done, right? And when you come to Christ, God's not waiting for a little few minutes and be like, all right, we're going to wait for obedience. Okay, I've gotten 10 minutes of obedience. Now you're justified. No. In Romans 4, 5, has to stand. He justifies the ungodly, which means at the moment of your justification, you're still ungodly, which means there's nothing that God looks at in you and in your works that is the grounds for your justification. Okay? 
But true faith that justifies is a faith that unites us to Christ and it attaches the, us to the vine. So now that we have the life of Christ pulsing through our spiritual veins, so to speak, and we now have new inclinations and a new heart and a new desire to walk in paths of obedience. Okay? So true faith is a faith that, that follows the Lord. But true faith is not that which combines both faith in Christ and works for our justification. The works come as a result of our justification. So I hope that answers your question. Yeah. Any other questions? Yes, Lucia. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think one of the, the first things that we need to cultivate as Christians so that we wield these kinds of truths, because these, these are like, like very precision truths, right? I mean, the, you have to v deal with them in, in, a, in a very careful way or we might misuse them, right? And uh, I think what we have to cultivate, and I'm preaching myself here and my wife would attest, uh, we have to cultivate a heart that weeps with those who weep so that the person who's suffering, your friend, whoever it might be, your brother and sister in Christ, that it genuinely touches you so that your heart is genuinely broken. You're just, you're just grieved. You're grieved with them, that your heart sinks with theirs, that you, that you feel their, their, the, the pain of their loss with them, that you're almost kind of suffering alongside of them. And that's what compassion is. It's a suffering with that person. That's what the word actually means. So by God's grace and by spirit, I think we need to develop this. We need to cultivate this so that we are so united to each other and so love each other that when someone's parent dies or when they have great financial loss or when something horrendous happens in their life, that we aren't just looking upon them in a, at a kind of distance, but that we're actually feeling it ourselves. That the weight is almost kind of unbearable for our own selves because of how we love that person. And I think when that's the starting point, then we will be able to rightly wield these truths because we'll have the right heart in approaching that person. And so I think the, the first step is so developing a heart for one another that we feel the, the pain. And then Paul talks about this. This is how the body of Christ is put together. This is 1 Corinthians 12 and, and um, so on. And he says, we're members of one another in Romans 12. And that's before he says, weep with those who weep. So this is all about being so united with each other and that we feel the weight of each other's pain. And uh, I think I, there's been times when I have experienced this and I, I need to experience it more so that anybody suffering in the body of Christ uh, deeply touches me. Um, and it can be, in, it, here at CBC, can be with others, obviously, that you're uh, close to. I think it also can be expanded out to um, other people in your life who may not be believers, but this council here is particularly for believers because only believers have this hope. And you can take this to an unbeliever and say, this is the hope that's laid out for believers and then invite someone into this hope. But I really do think it starts with 
this ability, this capacity to suffer alongside of. And this is not natural. Like we, I personally, just speaking from my own experience, this is something that I think our hearts naturally want to avoid. It's uncomfortable to suffer alongside of somebody. It doesn't feel good. I'd rather rejoice with those who rejoice. And, uh, and even we sometimes struggle with that because then envy comes along. But this, this suffering alongside, it's just, it doesn't, it's not comfortable. It's something that has to be cultivated, I think, by the Spirit. But something that we should definitely seek. So that then, I think we have the wisdom and the tenderness to wield this truth the right way. Uh, so I think that's all I would say for right now, Lucy. It's a great question. And what I fear is that we would wield it in the wrong way and be too over the top and overbearing. But then the other side would be we never speak the truth that they really need to hear in a gentle and, and life-giving way. So, yeah, great question. Yeah, Addison. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, I think it is probably case by case because I do think there are legal issues that should be brought to the bar of earthly justice. Um, some serious ones, obviously, in relation to unlawful taking of life and re uh, relating to children and, and abuse and these kinds of things. These should all be brought to the bar of justice. However, Paul says when it comes to you being defrauded by someone, just be defrauded, <laughs> right? I mean, that's crazy, right? Unless you're going to get... Uh, a multi-trillion dollar inheritance someday with Jesus, right? So that's just crazy talk, Paul. Uh, but it's not because he knows what you're about to inherit. So, so there, is, there are times when you just, you're like, I'm going to let the Lord deal with this, right? But I think your point is wise. It's, it needs to be case by case because there are some things that you need to press into the bar of earthly justice. And, um, you know, like there is that big case of, of, of abuse with all those gymnasts, right? That needed to be exposed and dealt with very thoroughly, and everyone needs to be brought to the bar of justice, and all those girls need to have their say and have their day in court and so on. Um, but then there are some things like Paul would say, just, just, be, just, just be defrauded, you know, and let it go and move on. And so case by case, I think, is wise. Yeah. Anything? Yeah. Sure. So yeah, so a few things. Uh, the Bible speaks, so let's just take that specific, that's why you need to talk in concrete, talking concrete realities, not abstractions, right? So this is good. So the person just lost his house, lost everything for whatever reason. Um, maybe it was personal 
financial malfeasance, maybe it was a natural disaster, okay, he's lost everything. Uh, the Bible addresses how he is going, uh, how uh, he is to respond in this situation in terms of trusting the Lord and uh, needing to work to get back on his feet and maybe rebuilding integrity that brought about this thing of his financial malfeasance and so on uh, and all those things. So there's, there's counsel, but we're not just to counsel, right, as believers. We're not just to love in word, but also in what? Deed and in truth, right? So, yes, the, the, there's going to need to be a lot of counseling, but just to leave this person with those, I think as, as a believer, just to leave without thinking, how, how can I somehow practically help this person is to, is to miss out on a big piece of what it means to be a follower of Christ. So I think it, it needs to be clearly stated that we're not just counselors of one another, right, as believers. We are also those who Paul says need to be rich in good deeds and need to be rich in good works ready to fulfill immediate or urgent needs. That's right at the end of Titus. But it's all over the New Testament. So it's, it's not only being willing to counsel and speak these truths, which he does need to hear depending on his situation, and truths that will uphold him and, and help him to persevere and now find a new job and start rebuilding and, and rely upon the, the help of others during this time, but also to be someone as a believer who thinks of practical ways to, to help him. Again, but it's, it needs to be a case-by-case case and perhaps... Uh, depending on how he came about this situation, that's going to dictate in some measure how and what ways I will help him and so on, you know. So, but we are, we're whole Christians, right? We're not only speaking the truth to people's minds, but we're also coming along and helping in their material and physical needs. We want to keep both together, right? I think New Testament religion is keeping both of those things together. And in the history of evangelicalism, they're either, you're either on one side or the other. It never seems to be a really solid balance that I think the New Testament gives. So that's how I'd handle that situation. That's a really good question. But we'll, get, we'll even get more into that as we talk about other things as we move on. Okay, let me wrap this sec section up with these last two. Uh, the nature of reality. It's a, just a brief theological foundation. Where you get, or your, I should say, Counsel will be formed by your assumptions about the nature of reality, whether it's supernatural or whether it's merely natural. Uh, a merely natural approach or assumption, a naturalistic assumption about the world will lead you to have a particular view of humankind as being primarily, if not predominantly, if not completely material, biological, so that psychological problems will be dealt with primarily from a medical standpoint, whereas if you have a supernatural view of the universe with God and with uh, immaterial realities like spirits and souls and so on, then you're going to have a, a different kind of anthropology and likely a different kind of solution to problems. And so we need to recognize the difference of this understanding of the nature of reality. Reality is supernatural, not merely natural. Our environment is supernatural because God fills all things. We need a supernatural change wrought in us and in our, and our environment if we are going to ultimately escape our problems. Supernatural change is possible in this life. God is the one who directs all events, institutions, and people for his ultimate purposes. And then finally, this is where we're going to camp out for the next few weeks. And I just think this is going to be really exciting <laughs> because it's going to help us see the differences between uh, certain approaches 
to uh, counseling the Bible and psychology within the Christian circles, okay? And we're going to get down to like the foundations of things. I think it'll be really illuminating for all of us, okay? But this is an important theological foundation for counseling. The scripture is God-breathed in its entirety. That's the language that Paul uses in 2 Timothy 3.16. And here's what's really cool. It's one sentence, right? Just, it's just a phrase, really. Um, the, the word God-breathed is one word, theopanoustos, in uh, 2 Timothy 3.16. All scripture is God-breathed. This is a profound statement. So you can, you can look at the scripture and see every word is literally from the mouth of God, God's breath. We have God's word, and for that reason and other clear teaching in the, in the Bible, we can therefore know that it is inerrant in its entirety. There are no errors in the original manuscripts. It is a pure word. But back to 2 Timothy 3.16, what is fascinating about this passage is that flank, flanking this little sentence about, just this profound sentence about all Scripture being God-breathed, are Paul's concern about practical issues. He says in verse 15, this scripture is meant to uh, lead you to salvation. And then right after that, it's profitable for teaching, for rebuke, for correcting, for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be uh, sufficient for every good work. So you're not left with some profound theological abstraction. The reality of scripture being God-breathed is meant to lead, lead to exceedingly practical life change. Okay? But the reason it is is because it is God-breathed. It has supernatural power to actually change you, to change your affections, to change your thinking, to change your heart, to change your life. It is God-breathed in its entirety. It is inerrant in its entirety. Because Scripture is inspired by God, it is also inerrant. In the original manuscripts, God's Word is entirely and completely without error. God only speaks truth and cannot lie. God cannot lie. It's not possible for Him. There are things that God cannot do, thank God. Can God do everything? No, He can't. He cannot lie. And it's for that reason that we can have any hope at all. Everything He says is true. It is therefore fully reliable and trustworthy and correct on everything it touches on. Uh, one theologian said, I'm paraphrasing, the scripture uh, is sufficient for everything it touches on, or everything it, how does it say it? Everything it talks about, and also it talks about everything, or something like that. It's very... It's very pithy, but uh, it is. It's reliable and trustworthy and correct on everything it touches on. And then finally, it's sufficient for all doctrine and life, and this will be the topic for the next few weeks. Given these qualities, we can say that Scripture is sufficient for counseling others, and we will talk about specifically what that means, what it doesn't mean, why we can say such things, and that will be our topic for next, I'd say maybe two, maybe three weeks We'll see. I shouldn't, I shouldn't say those things because I always set myself up for failure. So, any last questions? We have a minute and a half. Well, okay. I will uh, pray for all of you and pray for this truth to sink deep into our hearts and then you guys are free to go. And uh, I'll see you at the main service. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks and praise for these wonderful truths and the remedy you have provided for our deepest problem. God, I do pray that you'd give us wisdom, wisdom on how to apply the truth of your word, that we would wield it in ways that are truly beneficial 
that you'd give us wisdom, that we would not think, us more, think ourselves more wise and more competent than we are, but that we would rely upon you and your wisdom and your spirit. God, I pray that we would all grow in our competency to counsel one another, to be able to speak a word into each other's lives that truly helps and helps us overcome our problems. I pray that there would be a lessening of the professionalization of counseling, that we would be able to do it among ourselves in ways that are appropriate and fitting and truly life-giving. And I just pray for each person here that you protect them from the evil one and grow them each in wisdom. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.